one of the really beneficial uses of our time here on retreat at the Forest Refuge, partly because of the unstructured nature of the time generally, that we have all these opportunities, uncontrived, natural, organic opportunities to clarify the refuge that's here and now, to clarify what we mean by the word practice, which we tend to hear that word a lot, what we mean by awareness, And um, like it or not, I think we have to understand that we're on our own because even within our early Buddhist Vipassana insight meditation tradition here in the West, you know, people use the words slightly differently. They give instructions slightly differently. And in the end, you know, we're we really just need to be clarifying for ourselves what kind of practice actually, what way of practicing actually seems to be clarifying the causes for suffering, for stress, allowing for more and more release from those states, states of being bound up. So tonight I want to talk about awareness, mindfulness, depending on the word we tend to associate with. Not so much our practice, it's really the practices that we do are strengthening and uh, clarifying this capacity of awareness. So it might be useful for us at the beginning tonight just to take some moments and, you know, even while I'm talking, you know, to notice that there is awareness and I'm guessing you didn't have to prompt it and that you're not, that the awareness that you're sensing isn't dependent on you practicing right now. I mean, there are many useful practices. Clearly, what we're up to benefits from, you know, being wholehearted, being all in, being able to persist. But a lot of that, what we call practice, is in a way revealing or helping the mind to understand 
this experience, this capacity, this ability to abide in awareness that's here and now. You know, we talk about this a lot in terms of understanding the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart. And this doesn't mean that awareness is somehow the, you know, is it the unconditioned or is it not the unconditioned? (laughs) I'm sure many of you know this. These are places where we can, you know, we could spend lifetimes, literally lifetimes arguing. I think uh, Ajahn Sumedho, in a very funny place and talks and in some of his writings, you know, would joke about how there is nothing more insufferable than being destined to attend Buddhist conferences, you know, where these things are discussed and argued. Gilfranstall, you know, the usual translation for the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, right? That's how we normally hear it. And he would translate it, the four ways of establishing awareness. It's probably, interestingly, you know, it's the sutta, the discourse is really about establishing sati, which usually gets translated as mindfulness, but Gil Franzdahl, both a scholar and a wonderful Dharma teacher, prefers the translation of sati as awareness, which makes sense to me. And uh, the four ways of establishing awareness But it might be better said, instead of the word establishing, the four ways of revealing this capacity of awareness, clarifying, strengthening awareness. And at the beginning, there's this pretty inspiring few sentences. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four ways of establishing awareness. There is the case where a practitioner remains attentive of the activities of the body and mind in and of themselves, like these four ways, body, feeling, mind and mental qualities, depending on how those four establishments are translated. Hardened, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So this word sati, awareness, mindful awareness, wise awareness. It really, in my mind, has this uh, capacity 
as a universal solvent. It's like the structures of our attachments and our clinging and our grasping and our reactivity. When mindfulness, when wisdom awareness, when it has some, this capacity has been developed and when awareness is deeply trusted, it really has the capacity to melt away, to cause the entanglements to pass away, the heaviness, the bound upness to pass away. I remember a really poignant time when uh, Saito Utejaniya was teaching a two-week retreat at Spirit Rock. This wasn't too long ago. I think it might have been the last time he taught here, and then he went and taught at IMS a little bit later that same spring. And, uh, and at the very end of that two-week retreat, he said to all of us, on the retreat, and in a way that just for me really hit home, it just felt very heartfelt coming from Sayadaw that the thing that was um, he cared most about as a teacher that just really uh, was important to him as a teacher is that practitioners not understanding the value of awareness, not appreciating how liberating it can be, this capacity of awareness. Don't make the efforts, don't do the practices that really strengthen and reveal this potential of awareness, this wisdom awareness. And you can, you know, we all have our experiences where there was, the mind was trusting awareness, let's just call it that, which is not the same as practicing awareness or doing the awareness, but recognizing and trusting and supporting. And, and we noticed how that presence of awareness changed protected us in terms of our actions, how we were thinking, how we were speaking, choices we were making, especially in sticky situations. We could all probably, if we took the time, come up with some compelling stories to share with each other how because of the presence of awareness, we avoided making some serious mistakes that would have had all kinds of repercussions in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And in the same way, this is something I'm sure you're noticing now that when awareness is trusted, is recognized and trusted, it gives us, gives the mind a lot of immunity. All those off-ramps that the mind would take into discursive thought, unproductive planning, 
obsessing, worrying, you know, fantasizing, lusting. Not that we don't do that, but how many times did the stability of awareness allow wisdom to do its job naturally? Like going down that, taking that off ramp is not going to help. Doesn't even, of course, need those words, but that's the, the realization, you know, the impulse to take the off ramp and to start worrying or start obsessing. Those impulses, all the unhelpful, unwholesome impulses, Saito Tejaniya would say those are kind of our legacy, kind of the karmic fruits from everything past. All of those impulses, tendencies of the mind, we have to in a way submit. This is the conditioned mind. These are the tendencies of the conditioned mind. But that trust and awareness, taking refuge, more and more abiding in that wise awareness, then those unavoidable impulses when they show up are felt and seen and abandoned. So it purifies our actions, it purifies the mind, and it purifies view. Because whenever, and I'm sure there are many of you, maybe all of us could give examples of more subtle self-centered attitudes established in the mind. And then they, just in the trusting of awareness, not trying to fix things, but just trusting this is being known. Then those subtle identifications, those subtle attachments, those fixed views, they stand out as unnecessary burdens, unnecessary entanglements. So I like to refer to this as a kind of soft power, but it really is a power. And I think this is what Saido Tejaniya was trying to convey this, like to activate our love, our devotional love for awareness. You know, it can't be in a sense grasped. It's not even easily depicted with Buddhist art. You know, how would you, you know, create a religious symbol for this capacity, this potential for awareness? Like a mirror that just simply fearlessly knows, illuminates, reflects, so that wisdom can do its job of discerning what's helpful and what's not helpful. You might remember in the Tao Te Ching, this uh, ancient Taoist text, there's a I think something that points to this uh, surprising power of things that 
you know, are really soft, I guess, for lack of a better word. And so this is a translation of this section from the Tao Te Ching. The weakest things in the world can overmatch the strongest things in the world. Nothing in the world can be compared to water for its weak and yielding nature. Yet in attacking the hard and the strong, nothing provides, I'm sorry, nothing proves better than it. For there is no alternative to it. The weak can overcome the strong and the yielding can overcome the hard. This all the world knows, but does not practice. And this is inspiring to me. I don't know how it lands for you, but, you know, of course, the obvious um, example of this, uh, I don't know if you've traveled to the West in Canyonland in the Southwest, but to see what the, you know, the power of water to create these amazing canyons over time. And I think that's that quality of uh, patient endurance that's so central to the path that we're on. It really arises out of this deepening sense of the power, the wholesome power of awareness. Awareness with, you know, awareness uh, partnering with wise view. To do what needs to be done. And we always, you know, a lot of us have, maybe still are bumping our heads against this central Buddhist teachings on anatta, the the sort of pointing about the nature, the impersonal nature of experience, that it doesn't refer back. But I think this really is is central. It's not like a later insight. It really has to inform our understanding of how we train. Because we're not just here, obviously, it wouldn't help to just come to the forest refuge and have the intention, I'm just going to follow the instincts, the habits of my mind. I'm just going to allow my mind to do what it wants. Because I don't know about you, but (laughs) my mind would seek out entertainments and You know, because my mind in different ways is still attracted and even in some ways addicted to intensity and excitement and contraction. So we're here to train our mind. A lot of the work of practice is to create the conditions so that the capacity of awareness begins in a sense to shine through. And we can sense or intuit its power, its trustworthiness, its essential capacity to wear down what needs to be worn down. Some of you were here earlier in the month when I gave, maybe it was even the first talk I gave, 
And I used that simile that the Buddha gave way back, you know, 2,500 years ago about the simile for the path of uh, the sails and the riggings of a boat that has been pulled out of the water and is in dry dock and just exposed to the elements, the sun, the humidity, the rain, the wind, and the riggings and the sails just rot away. And I think that's a, you know, especially at a place like the forest refuge where some of you have longer periods of time, it's just that sense of my real job is to trust awareness, trust wisdom to do its job, and to gain skill at getting out of the way and... uh, Reducing, you know, all of the avoidance patterns the mind has, doing what it's done before, getting the same results it's gotten before, you know, regurgitating this or planning that, seeing that that's not helpful, putting it down, and creating the conditions of trust and the conditions of relaxation and the conditions of, like even... It was interesting in Gil Fransdorf's article on mindfulness, that word uh, sampanjana, which usually gets translated as clear comprehension, he said that might be better translated as mindfulness. Like we often, um, like this, uh, Gil was making the point that it isn't sati when we practice remembering that this is being known. But it's a really skillful practice, you know, like now in this moment, you know, the experience is being known. And especially with the emphasis on is being known, not so much Mark's voice or the meaning of the words Mark is speaking is being known, but all of that is being known. So we have these practices that help develop the confidence and the trust and awareness that in a way the practices keep pointing to the power of awareness to illuminate and allow what isn't useful, what isn't helpful to fall away. And it's, it's just interesting. I mean, this is something we can test out because obviously we have to build our own confidence. You know, when we, it's not so much like when I practice putting down a defilement, but when we have a little bit more momentum in a, you know, particular time during the day when we just have more confidence to allow the blossoming of some unskillful tendency to worry or to obsess or to get irritated or frustrated. But to take refuge, to abide in awareness, it's like this now, and to see 
what happens to the unwholesome tendency in that trusting of awareness, that abiding with awareness. You probably know that image. Um, Sometimes the sutta I'm referring to now is translated as two kinds of thought. But the Buddha is using a simile of the cowherder and uh, giving two examples. One during the season when the crops are about to be harvested, like the rice, and the cowherder is bringing the herd of cows along some of those narrow paths between the rice paddies. And the cowherder has to be really, really alert, really vigilant to tap the cows this way and that way so they don't wander and smash the rice that's about to be harvested because, you know, the farmers would be upset, beat them up. And then other times, other seasons, when the crops are not in, of course, the farmers don't care where the cows wander. They're happy for the cows to be eating whatever's left in the fields and pooping and fertilizing. So then that cow herder can really relax. Some of you have probably done the Satipatthana course with uh, Venerable Analio, and he has that slide, you probably remember, with, uh, I don't know if it's an Australian sheepdog or something, but sitting comfortably under a shady tree, gazing at the herd off in the distance, because it's, it's just enough to know it's like this. And uh, that's what uh, awareness reveals. Like sometimes we think that, you know, oh, when I'm in dangerous territory, like when there's triggers and greed or hatred has been triggered in my mind, that I have to be this uh, Dharma force. I have to get up on that Dharma horse and ride in and do battle. But isn't there times where we realize that just being with the awareness of what's going on, we'll see wisdom doing its job as a natural, impersonal, and I don't know if it's quite right to say it this way, but effortless activity. Do we have to identify, you know, all these Dharma interventions, whatever it is, like redirecting one's attention or seeing the stressfulness of the lusting thoughts or whatever the mind might do? Do we need to, um, or can we just more and more as the years of our practice goes along, realize that this trusting of present moment awareness really allows, better and better, allows wisdom to do its work. All those many, many skillful means that have, you know, initially we feel like I'm doing it, I have to do them. And then we see it happening. In Gil's article, um, he gives the example like uh, sati, 
awareness is, a, is similar in some ways to faith. It doesn't, like we know, I can't just do faith. You know? Okay, I need more faith, so I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and it's the same thing with awareness. It's, it's more like we're learning to trust it. We're learning to take refuge in it. We're learning that it's here and now. And we get better at recognizing it. And it can help to know that we never do it. We're not doing awareness. We do direct attention, you know, so there's, there are things we do with attention that can be helpful or not helpful. But the centrality of sati, awareness, it's really good to take the time to sense it, that it's here, that it's now. I'll just read the end of this article. By the way, if you're interested in this article, it's just the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness by Gil Fransdahl and Gil's website from IRC Insight, uh, what is it, uh, Insight Meditation Center, IMC, and then the retreat center is IRC, but uh, in uh, South Bay, um, Redwood City is where the city center is. And they have, uh, he has all his articles there. And right at the end he writes, Regardless of how we translate the ancient Buddhist words, the purpose of mindfulness practice is to establish a strong degree of awareness. This in turn can lead to a state that the discourse on the establishing of awareness describes as abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world. When awareness becomes strong and stable, one can enter and abide in it in such a way that one can find freedom from what is known. And then the discourse ends, he quotes, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for overcoming sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of distress and grief, for the attainment of the practice, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four ways of establishing awareness. And for me, this is the very distinct taste or flavor of awareness is it it has, like when it's strong, when it's clear, that uh, trusting and awareness really creates the counterweight to identification with sensuality, with experience. Because the mind, the great habit of mind is to be seeking happiness, to be seeking sustenance, trying to feed on experience, identifying with experience, aligning with its likes and dislikes. You know that provocative image that's in the discourses of the the poor dog 
who happens, you know, to be at the place of a, a butcher that's very skilled. So when the butcher cuts the meat off the bones, they don't leave any meat, any flesh whatsoever in the bones and throws the bones to the dog. And of course, the dog thinks there's going to be something satisfying there. But all he does is bloody his own gums, you know, trying to get some nutriment from the bones. And this is the image, the simile the Buddha decided to use in describing our usual relationship to sense experience. The mind thinks the world of sensuality, the world of experience is really here. This is, this is a, for me, a good definition of ignorance, right? It's that tendency of the mind to think that experience is here to make me happy. And if I'm not happy, I I just need a different, a better experience. And so there's this restless activity in my life of trying to get the experience that will make me happy. And I have tension because sometimes situations arise where it feels like this person is ruining my chance to feed on experience because they're changing the circumstances of my life. I want it quiet and they're making noise or something like that. And the, the, the basic flavor of awareness, trusting awareness, there's something whole in that experience that changes how the mind changes how the mind relates to sense experience it really it really provides a kind of counterweight that allows wisdom to realize another way to be relating to sense experience non-clinging non-grasping non-attachment non-identification not expecting the world of experience, realizing it's really not there, never was there to provide sustenance to some sense, some permanent sense of a self. And so in a way, this is the, you know, what we often refer to as the Four Noble Truths. It's not so much that awareness is itself the refuge, but it, it's illuminating that there isn't a somebody It's like, it's not just that, oh, I'll never get satisfied from sense experience, but it's it's illuminating that the whole thing isn't what the mind thought it was, that there was somebody who needs to feed. It's like a house of cards comes falling down. And what the mind was imagining was permanent, seen as being impermanent, or what the mind 
thought was satisfying, seen as not satisfying, with the mind was taken to be self, as seen as not self. One of the suttas, the Ajantani Saro translate this as real, the Tata Sutta. Practitioners, these four things are real, not unreal, not otherwise. What for? This is stress, this is real, not unreal, not otherwise. This is the origination of stress, is real, not unreal, not otherwise. This is the cessation of stress, is real, not unreal, not otherwise. This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. This is real, not unreal, not otherwise. These are the four things that are real, not unreal, not otherwise. Therefore, your duty is the contemplation. This is stress. This is the origin, origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of stress. So that's an interesting, you know, we always hear that because it's repeated so much that the Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering, right? That famous place in the suttas where he holds up the leaves and says there are many things I could teach, but I just teach stress and the cessation of stress. But that's not like, you know, it's not, it's really meant to be what, awareness reveals. Because it isn't so much that uh, that the practice is about uh, finding something. It's more about discovering what's not there. And, And awareness really helps reveal what's not there, <laughs> what the mind presumes is there, but the deepening trust of awareness really illuminates what's not there. So the, the liberating sense that there's no problem that there's freedom is really realizing what's not there, not some shiny palace spiritual palace, that's the reward of arduous practice. I mentioned the other day, um, maybe it was last Wednesday, about this uh, frame just in terms of finding our way during the days that we're here practicing you know, do, does the heart, mind, like, would it be more supportive to orient the heart and mind towards safety or toward more sensitivity, more exposure to the way that it is? Because there are things we can do, choices we can make that will hopefully evoke a greater sense of trust and safety, 
even self-soothing, you know, it's good to have more than a few things in our back pocket to deepen and evoke that sense of safety, just in very ordinary senses, like we belong here. I belong in this body, in this time and place. It's okay. And there are other times when the the spiritual or dharma medicine we need is practices that that sort of increase the sense of exposure to reality the way it is. Interest, more sensitivity coming out of uh, a stillness. skillfully bringing in wise view. And there's a, a really good example of this in the suttas with uh, Anathapindaka. Some of you know a very famous character from the time of the Buddha, a lay person, and who was known for being really generous. Even before he connected with the Buddha, was a very generous person, but very supportive of the Sangha at the time of the Buddha. And then uh, as he got older, he was um, close to death and um, the Buddha, I think, sent Sariputta and Ananda to go see him. And he was uh, really um, having a hard time with the amount of pain that was going on in his body. So they, you know, it's just modeling what I was just saying. The first thing they did is they helped him remember all the great generosity that he had done in his life. And it created a really nice counterweight to the physical pain of the dying process. He could really bring his attention to these really wholesome memories and reconnect with the goodness of being a generous person, having fed the nuns, the monks so many times, so many of them, so many times. supportive in so many different ways. And then they, you know, once he had more balance, had enough safety, the mind settled, was able to be curious, then uh, Sariputta gave him some wisdom teachings. And this is just a little piece of that. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after and examined by the mind. My consciousness will not be dependent on any of that. And this is the, you know, another flavor of awareness, right? It has like, and you, again, we can check even as I'm talking, like the awareness that's here, to sense that like a mirror, you know, which is an imperfect simile, but it, it, it has some value. Like a mirror is always independent of what it's reflecting. Awareness sort of demonstrates this independence. It's like not afraid of what's coming and going, not afraid of the conditioned world, not in need. Like sometimes we wrongly think our spiritual practice is like, Life is just too intense. 
the activity of my mind is too intense, the activity of my relationships is too intense, get me out of here, you know, and we want to come to the forest refuge and use one-pointed attention on some meditation object so we can disappear from all the pushes and pulls and the messiness of sensuality, of sense experience. But awareness, when developed, when brought to fruition, deeply trusted, awareness doesn't have a problem with what comes and goes. I mean, I'm sure many of you have heard this dozens of times, maybe even more. The awareness of anger isn't angry, right? I mean, this is something we can demonstrate, we can recognize over and over again. Some strong emotion will arise, will get triggered. And then if there's some momentum in our practice, some trust, we'll see. There is the awareness of the strong emotion, let's say unwholesome emotion, and the awareness remains unstained. Just like we could have a really exalted meditation, so much stillness, expansive, empty, radiant mind, heart, boundless love, or whatever the particular flavor of the meditation is. And awareness, the awareness isn't confused or spellbound or by the beauty of the exalted state. It isn't special in a, in a way. It's neither you know, beautiful or ugly. It, it really doesn't have any characteristics, does it? It just does its job. And again, it's not, we're not, in early Buddhism, we're not trying to put awareness on some kind of pedestal. We're really using it to liberate the mind. We're using the nature of awareness, abiding in awareness, to realize this liberation through non-clinging. It helps the heart, it helps wisdom do its job, which is revealing that clinging, grasping, attachment isn't functional, isn't needed. I'll end by reading um, from a teacher. I don't know if people have heard of Tony Packer. She made a splash, but a while back, a couple decades, she's been dead now for a while. I don't know how long, but you know, maybe 15 years, maybe even a little longer now. I can't remember exactly. Started out as a Zen teacher at the Rochester Zen Center in New York State, and then uh, didn't like kind of any real trappings of, you know, established Buddhism. And when pressed, maybe later would agree to be called like an awareness teacher or something like that, but I'm not sure she even liked that so much. And this article was originally in Tricycle in 2013, Unmasking the Self. I'm not sure if this is from one of her books. She has several really wonderful books, by the way. You can track them down.
So I just want to read a couple paragraphs to end the talk. So again, Tony Packer. Awareness cannot be taught. And when it is present, it has no context. All contacts are created by thought and are therefore corruptible by thought. Awareness simply throws light on what is without any separation whatsoever. (coughs) Awareness, insight, enlightenment, wholeness, whatever words one may pick to label what cannot be caught in words is not the effect of a cause. Activity does not destroy it. Sitting does not create it. It isn't a product of anything. No technique, method, environment, tradition, posture, activity, or non-activity can create it. It is there, uncreated, freely functioning in wisdom and love. When self-centered conditioning is clearly revealed in all its grossness and subtleness, and diffused in the light of understanding. Yeah, and that's what Saito Teshaniya would call letting wisdom do its job. That's the diffusing of all that conditioned activity. Let me just read a little bit more from this. I'll skip a paragraph. Sitting motionlessly quiet for minutes or hours, regardless of the length of time, is being in touch with the movements of the body, mind, gross and subtle, dull and clear, shallow and deep, without any opposition, resistance, grasping or escape. It is being in intimate touch with the whole network of thoughts, sensations, feelings and emotions without judging them good or bad, right or wrong, without wanting anything to continue or stop. It is an inward seeing without knowing, an open sensitivity to what is going on inside and out, flowing without grasping or accumulation, stillness in the midst of motion and commotion is free of will, direction and time. It is a complete letting be of what is from moment to moment. You can take a moment and let the words go away. Just a few breaths in silence together. And then let's end our time. We'll chant the reflections on sharing blessings on the other side of the refuge sheet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.